0: Today is September the 16th, 2014, and this is episode 1427 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we're going to have a, uh, an episode, just Jack, talking to you guys about a particular subject. And today's subject is a question that I get a lot. Uh, I don't get it a lot, I don't think, from people that listen to the show frequently or listen listen to it for a very long time. Uh, occasionally a little bit of it inkles in, but this is really a question that many people who discover the concept of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and modern survivalism, and then they say, I want to be more self-sufficient, I want to be able to provide for myself off of my own piece of land. And that question is, how much land is enough? How much land does it take to provide everything I need? That's a flawed question. Some of you know why. I think even those that know why will love today's show. Those that don't know why, you're really going to like today's show, even though you might hear a few things you don't want to. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. The sponsor of the day, number one today, is Ready-Made Resources. Ready-Made Resources provides exactly what it says it provides. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. You can check them out today at readymaderesources.com, and they've got it all from the practical to the tactical, from gardens to guns. And everything in between, ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. That's the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors, where they are perpetual students and teachers. Frank requires all all of his instructors to take multiple courses every year from other instructors. He believes that you are not improving unless you're continuing to learn. And if you're not continuing to learn and improve, you really shouldn't be teaching. That's the philosophy you'll get if you go to Fortress Defense Consultants, where they will make you the linchpin, effective linchpin that is in the gun operator triangle. That I always talk about: you got to have the gun, you got to have the ammo, but in the end, you are the operator. You are the one that makes it effective when necessary. Learn more at FortressDefense.com. Next up today, uh, do consider joining the member support brigade. That'll uh, help you let you let you help support the show. Uh, The cost to do that is $50 a year or $5 a month or even less if you are a military person, a law enforcement officer, a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter have served in the Peace Corps. Any of those things, uh, active duty or prior service, will qualify you for an even greater discount. The MSB is a great value, guys. It provides you discounts on things you're buying anyway, real discounts, not fake ones like you get from AAA. Uh, If you're buying stuff in the guns and gardens and tactical and practical world for for, uh, self-sufficiency and independence, we've got the discounts for you. Today we're going to talk a little bit about planting trees. How about 10% off everything at Bob Wells Nursery? That's the latest benefit that I've added. Over 40 different companies giving you discounts so that your membership will pay for itself. If you're not a member yet, consider joining today. There's also a lot of other great benefits to being an MSB member. Next up, let us take a look at the year That was the episode. The year is 1427. It is a long time before Columbus will sell the ocean blue. Remember 1492, Columbus sold the ocean blue. I bring that up because it has something to do with what we're going to talk about today, even though I guess Columbus was probably in diapers at this point. I have two to pick from today. The Age of Exploration, the Azores, which I'm going to read, and the Hussites Spank the Crusaders. You might want to read that one for yourself. I'll just give you the my take by Alex Shrugged on that one real quick. The villagers are picking off the fleeing crusaders who have swaggered through those same villages months before, no doubt looking for food and loot. As the saying goes, be nice to the people on your way up because you will be meeting those same people on the way down. Uh, yeah, I read that for you without telling you what it's really all about because it's interesting. And... Uh, It makes me think of a modern saying, be careful of the toes you step on today as they may be connected to the ash you're required to kiss tomorrow. Uh, That's a good piece of advice for everybody. But my actual history segment today, the Age of Exploration in the Azor Islands. The Portuguese continue to explore in every direction. The Atlantic Islands of the Azores are about halfway to North America, but no one realizes it. The Azores are uninhabited, so the Portuguese colonize it. Like the Madria Islands, it will remain part of Portugal into the modern day. My take by Ali Shrug, given how hit-and-miss navigation still is, it takes real nerve to set out on such an exploration at sea, but it's not done to satisfy curiosity. They are perfecting navigational skills. Portugal is at the end of a long overland shipping route, so they're looking for ways to navigate around the Cape of Africa without crashing into the shore at night. They believe that it can be. they can get cheaper goods for themselves from India and China over a sea route. They can also sell those same goods to Europeans for a profit. The Silk Road is no longer reliable since Tamerlane discontinued the patrols and kept the route safe from bandits. couple things I have to say about this. Now, number one, Tamerlane, we know, is like one of the most mass-murdering scumbags in history. But he kept the roads open. Who would build the roads? There you go. Anyway, next up, the Azor Islands. The reason I mentioned Chris Columbus here is because, well... The story we learned in history in school is that this guy, Christopher Columbus, believed the world was round. And he was willing to prove it by sailing off into parts unknown. And I'm not saying what Columbus did required no courage whatsoever. But we hear stories of his, his crew were going to throw him off the boat. And if they didn't find anything the next day, they were going to have to go back. And they were going to kill him. And he made deals. And he almost had a mutiny. And it's all bullshit. This is part of the truth about it. When you hear the story of Christopher Columbus, they never mention the Azores, do they? They never mention that halfway across, there was already known that there was some land. They talk about it like it's just this big, massive, blue expanse, and all these people were ignorant to the ways of the world and had no idea how things worked, and they were just possibly going to sail off the edge of the planet Earth. It's bullshit, and one way we know it's bullshit is to look at the year 1427 and see what happened before what you're being told about. That's my lesson for you today with history. To put history in its context, you must not only know what occurred after it, you must know what occurred before it. That's something we're missing in a microwave society of today, where we go, we have to go fight ISIS, and we can't even look back two or three years and see how that whole mess started. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, and As we do that, I have for you the plant of the week from Bomb Wells Nursery, because it's Tuesday. This week, I have for you what are called cold, hardy avocados. Here's the deal on those. Um, Cold, hardy avocados include varieties like Joey, Lila, Poncho, and Fantastic, Adaptable from Zones 8 through 10. So that's generally a lot colder than a typical avocado can go. And I, I, I've talked to Bob personally, and he says that with the right care, they can handle Zone 7 in some situations. Now, these are medium-sized avocados weighing approximately six to ten ounces and are egg-shaped. They have excellent rich flavor and are known to be health heavy producers. Cold, hardy avocado trees that are mature have withstood temperatures as low as fifteen to eighteen degrees. They recommend covering the tree first winter if temperature drops below freezing. Once the tree's been in the ground for a year and is well rooted, it will begin to withstand the colder temperatures. The older the tree gets, the more cold-hardy it becomes. For those of you who live anywhere above Zone 8, they have the Joey Avocado, which is a semi-dwarf variety you can grow in a container and bring it inside during the winter. You can see all avocado varieties currently available at Bob Wells Nursery in the show notes today under Plan of the Week for Bob Wells. And I'll tell you that all the varieties mentioned weren't on the site. They probably have on the site what's available now. If you're interested in some other things, give them a call. They will help you out. They're great people. And with that, let's get into how much land is enough. Um, I said at the beginning, and some of you that are long time listeners of the show where I've, I've, i gone onto the subject one way or another before, kind of probably knew where I was going. But when I said, if you ask the question, how much land is enough, it was a flawed question. And hopefully I, I kind of hooked you if you're not familiar with the, the concept I'm, I'm going on here. Uh, because it is a flawed question. There's no really hard rule as to how much land is enough and in fact the question itself is 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 definitely flawed the person asking a question is 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 generally asking it, it this way what they're not saying is how much land is enough to provide 100% of my needs? That's almost always what a person means when they say it that way. When the when the zombies march, when the world ends, uh, I, and, I, and I have to provide for my family, for me and mine, and we can't get anything from anywhere else, and we're going to die if we don't have the land, how much land do I need? The reason that said question is flawed is simply you're not going to provide 100% of your needs on your own from any piece of land. There's a number of reasons this is the case, but the biggest reason, though, is uh, simply man hours. A piece of land that can only yields it can only yield so much. There's limits to population and consumption, as we say in permaculture. And each square foot of land under cultivation requires at least some human action interaction. Even a wild berry bush must be picked if you're going to have berries. And hens might lay eggs, uh, and a small flock's a great addition to your homestead if you can do it or you want to do it. But you have to feed those chickens, water them, house them, and you know at certain points in time they have to be culled out and replaced, or you just have pets that eat a lot of feed. You 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 could conceivably actually provide all the needs of a family on a piece of land with, without getting anything off from offsite, but it's it's not easy. It's going to involve sacrifice, and it's not really practical, and it's not the way that most people want to live, and it's not even the way people lived before planes, trains, and automobiles. If you go back to colonial America, there were towns and shipping canals and and interactions. And those of you that believe in the end of the world as we know it in the Hollywood manner, even if that happens and and the way that it's portrayed is is not going to, um, people will immediately begin to see commerce with other individuals for the very reason that you can't live this way. Um, There's a couple ways it could be done. It could be done, and I'll, I'll acknowledge those as to not... You know, be challenged on it. One is if you had like a hundred acre plus polycultured Mark Shepard style farm, uh, where you had just a tremendous variety of things growing and had developed it over 10 or 15 years to the point where it's almost wild in its, its, uh, its, its nature and you're moving lots of animals through it and doing rotational grazing and all, it's conceivable that you could provide 100% of your own needs. You'd probably still get bored and want to interact with other people, and it's probably not the lifestyle that most of you want to live or have time to live or have the means to live, uh, especially during the 15 years it takes to get there, or 10 years it takes to get, or even 5 years. And so that's one. The other way would be is if you had a significantly sized piece of land... In a wilderness environment where you could live on forage, it's, it's conceivable if you lived in a place with either high game limits or were willing to break those laws and the game body count was there, that one could live a, a Native American style lifestyle with a little bit of cultivation and, and survive. Uh, those are when you're you know multi-hundreds of acres or more to really be able to do that. Um, and they're not generally that practical. And, and that's why I say you're not going to do it. And the person that says, well, I am too, well, then you're going to do it. And nothing and I say is going to change that. It's kind of like some of my advice about debt when I say don't do it. And a person says, well, I have this business plan. I'm going to leverage debt the way, by the way, Mark Shepard does to do land. Okay, well, then you know what you're doing and you're going to do it. Because you have a, you're have you doing it for a purpose with a plan. But in general, a person that gets a credit card then says, well, I get airline miles. It's going to end up up to their ass in debt. So my advice is no credit cards. Okay. And and I might say, well, you know, if you travel, uh the the, the it used to be there was the, the 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 objection people had with me was, well I need to rent cars. And like, you can rent a car with a debit card, dude. And they're like, No, you can't I'm like, Yeah you can, I did it for and I did it for years. And it's gotten now where it's getting very, very difficult. I, I ended up in a couple situations where I was able to rent a car but it ended up costing me a lot more money. I finally broke down and got an actual credit card. So there's always exceptions to the rule. I wanted to acknowledge those, but I also want to point out that You don't play to the exception. You play to the average and the desirable. And you play to the things that are most likely to happen, and you play to the things that are most likely to go wrong. Not, you you know, that's why we changed the prepper scenario from these end-of-the-world scenarios we do on Monday to things like losing a job or being told you have to evacuate for a week. These are much more realistic, and I want to be realistic with you today. So while... So understand that when I say you're not going to do it, it doesn't mean that it's impossible. It means it's highly improbable, and you're probably not going to do it. And if your plan is, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Jack. I'm going to get myself like 150 acres, and I'm going to have some stuff done there, but not that much. And then if the world ends, I'm going to move there and turn it into a productive system, because then I'll have the time to be a farmer, because I have nothing else to do, except watch my back for zombies, because the world's in. I'm telling you, if that's your plan, and if it ever actually works out that way, you're going to starve to death. You're going to starve to death unless you've really built the infrastructure in advance, and you've built the plantings, a lot of it, the perennial plantings in advance as well. And you've got some kind of game component going on there. You know, a, a river, a stream, a lake, something with fish, uh, hogs, deer, something like that going on. Because uh, there's a plenty of time for you to starve to death between the time you put one bean seed in the ground and one bean pod comes off of it. And all of it's harder than you think if you've never done it before. So the, the, the concept that I see here is the people that have 17 seed vaults, and they're all hermetically sealed, and they all put them in cold storage, and when the zombies come, I'm going to plant a garden. Well, good luck. You're going to starve to death in that situation. And, and even though I don't think that particular situation is likely, if that's what you're preparing for, you're preparing to fail. You really are. Now, if you have a year's worth of food, and that's your secondary plan, if it lasts that long, I, I think your, your, your mental tuning's a bit off, but at least it's valid. That is a valid plan. But in general, when people ask us questions, that's what they're saying. If I want to provide everything I need, how much land do I need? And my answer is, ain't going to happen. And that's, that's the stance I'm taking today, or that's the angle I'm coming from today. For most of you, it ain't going to happen. So let, let's look at it this way. How do we turn that house into a homestead? How do we create an environment where we are getting a lot of production off a piece of land? And how do we understand the value of land and the value of land ownership? I want to speak to an objection that I hear from a lot of libertarians, by the way. I'm never going to own land. It's a sucker's game. You have to pay property tax on it. And that means you don't really own it, and they could take it away, so I'm just going to rent. So you're paying somebody else's property tax, dude. I mean, I, I, I have gotten so weary of that objection. You know what that is? That's a person who hasn't figured out how to buy land yet making an excuse for not figuring out how to buy land yet. There's very few people that really mean that when they say it. They're full of crap. Because you're living somewhere, and if you're renting, if you're renting a house, it's sitting on land, and the land and the house come with taxes. And your landlord is not benevolently renting it to you for all expenses and a little profit minus the property tax. So that's just the stupid objection. And the difference is when I'm paying property tax on my own land, I can deduct it for my income tax, and when I'm paying property tax on somebody else's land, I can't. So it's 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 meaningless. Now, it's it's not completely meaningless because if you have a piece of land that you're paying $12,000 a year taxes on and it's a tenth of an acre, you got a problem. I guess you're living in a trendy area or something like that and you're not trying to make your land produce because you can't. can't offset that. So I look at it this way. Taxes are not a necessary evil, but they're a present evil and they're not going away anytime soon. So I have to build my system for myself with understandings of the systems around me, and one of them is the taxation system. So a lot to do with selecting land has to do with that component. And a lot of the things that have to do with how much land is enough have to do with where is the land. I I could probably do a lot more on a quarter of an acre in the outer suburbs than a quarter of an acre in an inner city because there are less people there to tell me what I can and can't do. And I can definitely do more on a quarter acre in the suburbs that's just dealing with a local government than a quarter acre in the suburbs dealing with a local government plus an HOA. So my rules for land is the best land is unincorporated land without an HOA. That's, that's the, that is that's the holy grail because you can do whatever you want there. And I'll tell you what, when I bought my three acres here in North Texas, there were some things about the land that aren't perfect but that one was there. And there were competing properties that the land itself, in some ways, was better land. Less rocky, easier to work. But it came with restrictions that I did not want to have. And so I, just, I chose geographic restric- restrictions versus government restrictions. And there's a reason. The geographic restrictions here are what they are. I know what I'm dealing with. They're not going to change. The more potential for government interference on a piece of land, the more new restrictions can appear after you've already begun working within the bounds of the existing restrictions. So my preference in selecting land is to select land with the least likely new restrictions to show up. And unincorporated is about the best we can do there. And there's a lot of unincorporated land In population centers, that's like this piece of land. It's unincorporated. When you're standing out here, you feel like you're out in the farmlands. You feel like you're kind of out in the farmlands where a few people built some houses around relatively close to each other. But yet, in 20 minutes, I could be standing in downtown Fort Worth if there's no traffic. And there's a a value to having that interaction with the urban areas when you want them, the separation and the freedom. To me, that's the best. If you can't do unincorporated, you're looking for a city or a township with low restrictions. And I would even say I'd rather have a city or a township with moderate restriction than low restrictions plus an HOA. The worst, the worst, the worst thing that can exist where you want to do anything like this is an HOA or a POA, a Property Owners Association. The only way I would say that is not the case is if it's a bunch of people that want a homestead that put it in place to protect their rights to homestead so that somebody else that moved in couldn't bitch and cause a problem because if you moved there, you already agreed that all this stuff was allowed. So an HOA that existed solely for the purpose of the preservation of the rights of the individual would be different to me than one that existed to restrict it. But in the end, I see it this way. An HOA is government. It absolutely is government. It has the power to fine you. It has to have a power to enforce what it wants through the power of the state. Because in HOAs, there may not be a guy that can come that says HOA police yet anyway on a badge and drag you out of your house and evict you. But because you agreed to their contract, they can use the court system to seize your house for not paying your HOA dues or in some cases parking the wrong color car in the front of your house. So I say if you're in an HOA and you can get out, if you can't, work with what you have. But I despise HOAs. I guess I couldn't really do this show without saying that for people, especially when you're looking for that next house. Oh, but we're not that bad. Yeah, never mind, right? The fact that you want to tell me what to do with my land at all, beyond all the federal, state, and local government things that already exist, right? Because you never, I guess I shouldn't say never, because sometimes you do see HOAs in unincorporated areas, specifically because they want to keep people like me out. We're known as the riffraff. Right, so I guess that can be where they show up in the unincorporated areas. But most HOAs are in gated communities and nice communities, and everything's landscaped, and everybody uses the edger to edge their Bermuda grass, so it's perfectly green and straight. And you know, you got pain in the ass old blue hair ladies running around and make sure that everybody's complying with all the all the laws that they've created for themselves, and, and it's just a nightmare. It's an absolute horrific nightmare. And what it is, it is a place to live for the person that says to themselves, I just don't have enough government. You know, if I just had a little bit more government in my life, if I had a few more people telling me and other people what to do, I could be happy. I can't be freaking happy with any freedom left at all for people to choose anything left in their lives. I have to have more oppression. Please give me more government. I'll even pay voluntarily for the purpose of having more government. And if you're one of those people, turn this show off. You must be new to it. You're going to hate it. You're like, nothing I'm going to say from here on out, even though I'm going to stop talking about this subject. You're going to hate everything about this show if you're that person. I don't think you are. You would have already turned it off. And those of you that say, well, my HOA is not that bad. They may not be. But if I'm making the decision to acquire land, I don't want the potential for them to become. And that's what always happens. When you give any group or entity power, they always use the power that they're given to give themselves greater power. And a total aside here, that's why this nation is the most tyrannical nation on planet Earth today in some ways. Not in all ways, but in some ways. That's why we're becoming the biggest police state in the world, because we started out with the most limited and freest government. Because even the most limited and free government will use that power to grant itself additional power over time. And the more prosperous a society is, is going to be directly related to how little and limited government is. And that made this nation one of the most prosperous nations in the world, and a lot of it was to do with the fact you could own land. And over time, everything became taxed. There was no income tax, there was no property tax, there were only sales taxes and importation taxes and government fees, all the way up until about 1913, guys. So somehow we made it all the way to there without all these other taxes. But that made this country extremely prosperous. And as it became prosperous due to a limited government, the government's ability to tax grew the size of government until eventually the growth of government outpaced the growth of liberty and that put liberty into a downward spiral. That's where we are today. But the way we got there was the ability to own land. And what I want you to understand as I go through these 10 questions to ask yourself about the land you do have or that you can acquire so that you can figure out what you can do with it versus how much is enough to do what you think you can do with it. I want you to think about what made people come to this country. And it was land ownership. It's hard for us to realize this, but 200 years ago, we were still looking at most of the world was under a feudal system. There were nobles. And royalty. And they could own land and you could not. And this was one of the first places where people could come and truly have private property rights uh, respected, even if they were a commoner or a serf. They could just simply leave, come here, maybe kill themselves working in a factory or something like that for a couple months to a couple years if they had to, live dirt poor but save up some money, And go out and either settle some land as a homestead or buy some land as a homestead, own it, and be able to make whatever they could out of it. And keep 100% of what they produced, and whatever they sold for a surplus, make 100% of the profit. That's what brought people here. Land ownership is true wealth. It's one of the Survival Podcast tenants. And today I want to talk about not how much land is enough. But what can you do with what you have? That's a much more important question. Or what can you do with what you can acquire or have access to? So my first question then to you in these 10 questions to determine what your land can do for you is how much land do you have? And that question is multi-purposed. One, it's because that does have a lot to do with how much you can produce. You, you can't produce as much on a tenth of an acre as you can produce on a hundred. And you can talk about all the intensive cultivation methods you want. If you did the same thing with a hundred, it would produce more. It's not possible, I know, but it's possible to do with an acre, so therefore, there is a certain break point. And there's certain, as you get into larger and larger pieces of land, there's ways to start doing more and more with mechanical means, such as plows and tractors and livestock and things like that, where... Even though, yes, there's less production per foot, there's still more total production. So in the end, we do have to kind of look at what's a reasonable goal for this piece of land. And you know, there's people that have produced two, three, or more tons of food on 10th of an acre, 20th of an acre city lots. I have to bring up a name right now that I don't want to bring up because as soon as I say this, people that don't know are going to tell me how wonderful these people are. There's a family in California very well known for this, and they are nowhere near the only ones or the best ones at doing this, but their name is Dervais. And they are a a group of people that I had a lot of respect for and I offered a lot of assistance to when the show started. And just so you know who you're back, and if you get in bed with these people or back what they're doing, they tried to trademark the term urban homestead and other phrases, and attacked simple, small, home-scale bloggers and authors uh, who had been using the term because they said it was their registered trademark, uh, which is complete nonsense, complete nonsense, just so you know that. But they are a good example of what can be done. But that type of production, I want you to understand where it comes from. It comes from what's called successive cultivation of annual crops. And what that means is we're growing very quick producing annuals and we're as soon as the the crop is done it's out and a new one's in. Sometimes a new one's in before the old one's out. So if we have we're coming into the cold season we're going to lose our peppers, we go in and prune out underneath the peppers and plant something like lettuce and spinach and kale underneath the peppers. So by the time the frost hits the peppers, the kale and lettuce are up. It's it's a farming methodology that gets to that level of production. And it's very difficult to do with perennials, especially quickly. We can do it with trees and bushes and shrubs and vines and perennials, which is what I want to base any production system on to the, to the you know the majority of it. But it, it's it's very difficult to do what can be done with intensive annual convol, uh, uh, cultivation done successively. Um, but then again, you're farming. It's not a homestead. You're a farmer. And can farmers have homesteads? Yeah, but. That means your job is farming. that's what you want it to be, fine. We need a lot of farmers. We need farmers doing spin farming, which is a person that goes out and finds 20 people who say, you can use my backyard to farm, and farms in 20 people's backyards, and the the, the landowner gets a little piece, and the spin farmer gets to sell the production. To people that are doing urban farms of a half acre to two or three acres to four acres, to people doing big, giant projects like Mark Shepard, And everything in between. We need as many farmers as we can get. You want to farm, farm. But for the person that's going to have a life outside of farming, it's not practical. So we start out with how much land is there to do two things. One, to get what's reasonable. But the other thing is just to to make us understand that that's what we have to work with. As soon as you say, well, I have a quarter of an acre, the mind stops thinking about what if I had and says this is what I have, so now what do I do? The next thing is what type of climate are you in and what can you easily grow? So, it's all good and well. You can look and say something like, okay, there's this guy named Sepp Holzer, and he's in Austria. He lives in the Austrian Alps, whip in the mountains where it snows, and he grows lemons. He grows lemons, man. You can grow lemons in the Alps, so you can definitely grow them in, like, oh, I don't know, like, like South Carolina. There's nothing that's not true about that, except that it's really hard to grow a lemon in a cold climate where it freezes beyond the temperature the lemon tree can accept, and there's all types of things that go into do it, and it's really a novelty. It's something done to prove that it can be done. And it's not what you base your production on. Yes, Seth Holzer's grown lemons in the Alps, but if Seth Holzer took up every lemon he grows in a year in the Alps, put them all in a basket, sold them for as much money as he could get as being a novelty-grown Alpine freaking lemon, he probably couldn't feed himself for two weeks on the money. So it makes a lot more sense that we say to ourselves, What grows here? What, where am I? And what, what already grows here? If we're in a place where pecans grow, native, then pecans are a good crop to grow. If we're in a place where plums grow, apples grow, peaches grow, pears grow, plant what grows there. If we're in Texas, you know what doesn't grow well here? Currents. Am I growing some currents? Yes. Is it is it so that I can live on currents? No, it's to prove it can be done. It's a novelty approach, and I believe it actually isn't that hard. And what it cost me to do that so far is I've had to basically kill 25 current plants to find one spot where one current is doing well. And that's fine. Because now I can take that one variety of current in that one spot that's doing well, I can take cuttings from it, and I can keep trying to find other places that will grow. That's that is that's playing around. And if I can end up with enough currant bushes that do grow well here, that I can make one batch of wine infused with currants or some kind of sauce or something like that, and have that novelty and have like that exotic flair, that is quality of life upgrade as a homesteader. That's like, check out my currants, man. I'm making currant mead with my bees, honey, and my currants. Right, That's awesome. And that's cool. But when it comes to planting my property, I'm not basing it on currants. It's like that's an afterthought. Where, would, where might they fit in? And I'm going to kill a bunch more currants of a bunch more different varieties to find out more varieties and more places on my property with the right microclimate where they'll live. And I can afford to do that, and times are good, and that's okay, and it's extra. But when it comes down to it, you know, what I found with my initial plantings are plums do great here. More plums are going in. Apples do pretty good here. More apples are going in. Why? Because they grow. Peaches, easy. Do great here. Blueberries, die. Die. That's just too alkaline. The alkaline acid thing, you don't have to have super acidic soil for blueberries, but you can't have highly alkaline soil, which is what I have. This is what happens with a blueberry here. You do all kinds of things to love on it, to amend the soil, to get it going good. You plant it. It looks like it's going to do okay. If it's a mature bush, when you plant it in the spring, it even puts some blueberries on. And then about Ju- July-ish, when it gets to 100 degrees, and it's put under the first little inkling of stress, and has to rely on itself to be able to, to make things happen under stress, it looks like somebody sprayed it with Roundup. It chemically burns itself to death. So no more blueberries in the ground. I'll grow blueberries. I have a plan. But that's like an extra plan, right? We start out with what can go in the ground without a lot of modification. So climate type, we're in a what grows easily here. What grows easily here is either things that already grow here natively or analogous to things that grow here, or that it's grown commercially. If you know that there are lots of apple and, and, and pear orchards around you, Then you know you can grow apples and pears. Maybe not the way those people are, but you know you can do it. The next thing is, how much time do you have to work on your property weekly? How much time are you going to put into this? And, you know, you might look at, well, I'm going to budget a significant amount of time, you know, once every four months for, for quarterly work. But then my ongoing work, I only have this much time. This is one of the very key questions that you have to be honest though. There are plenty of people who say, ah, five hours a week. They don't have five hours a week. Or if they give that five hours a week, they're going to want to kill themselves because they're at a time crunch limit. So do you? So this this can go either way. I don't have any time at all. I can't do this. That's probably bullshit. And if you really don't have any time at all, you probably need to do something like this. I'm going to tell you something today for a lot of you people that say, I don't want to do this. Now, I don't want to do this because I live in an apartment building. And I have no place to do it, and these shows are not really my cup of tea because of that. Fine, I'd like you to find some land someday so you can do this, but I get where you're coming from. Those that say I can't do it because it takes too long, it's too hard, whatever excuse you have. The human being is not meant to be separated from the earth. When I say the earth, I mean the trees, the forests, the animals, and the dirt, the soil. We are meant to walk and contact the soil. We are meant to touch the soil. We are meant to touch the plants and the human being's mind is never quite where it should be when it's disconnected from that. And you can see it this fast with people who are totally disconnected from it that you take for a walk in the woods or a stroll in the garden, and the first time they eat a piece of food straight from a plant, either from a wildcrafted blueberry or from a, a pepper grown in the plant, it, you, you watch them switch. So I'm going to tell you for your mental health, this is good. But you do have to be honest. And if the answer is, I'm willing to spend two hours a week maintaining my property, that is all, then you need to be honest about that. You need to be very, very honest about that. But do think about this, too. If you have a normal job, you work your job, and you come home, and you go out and tool around the yard and fiddle-fart around with stuff and make sure certain things need to get done get done for 30 minutes a day, You'll probably be a much better husband or wife or brother or sister or whatever in your household from the mental reprogramming that does to separate you from a day's labor doing something you don't want to do than you will if you don't. And that's two and a half hours just on a five-day work week. Now, if you take Friday off, it's still two hours. So most people can find a couple hours. But don't say it's 10 if it's not going to be 10. You'll design the wrong thing then. You need to think about this from a standpoint of what you really want to do more so than what you have available. But when the world collapses, I'll have all the time in the world to do that and defend my property. Yeah, well, you're designing it for now. Alright? Remember, we design our lives here for if times get tough or even if they don't. Okay? We do things that benefit us today, even if nothing goes wrong. That's one of our tenets. Okay. Um so how much time you have and be honest with it? And then the next thing to say is, of all the things I can grow where I live, vegetables, fruits, nuts, whatever you come up with, with the, you just know do well where you are. What do I actually like to eat? You know, if you find out that some old plant, like a meddler, which is cool. It's cool as shit. It's this old plant from Europe, it grows in this thing. It's like rock hard. You can take it off and throw it, hit somebody in the head with it. It'll hurt like you hit them on a rock. But you pick them at the right time. You sit them on a the counter, and they do what's called blet. It's like a ripening, almost a little bit going to a rot. But don't worry. It's not as bad as it sounds. And uh, when they get soft, you could just take a spoon and eat right out of like almost like it's almost like a a fruit shell. And it tastes like apple cinnamon. Cool. If you're not going to eat that, don't plant it just because it's cool. Right? Or you find out, well, you know what? Everybody around here is growing figs, man. Figs are easy. You don't like figs? Don't grow figs, dude. Unless you're going to do something with it. Unless, like, well, I don't like them, but my wife does. Fine. All right? Or well, I don't like them, but the neighbor likes them, and the neighbor's doing something I don't like to do. The neighbor grows chickens, and if I give him a basket of figs every year, he's willing to give me four broilers, and that's I'll put one fig tree in. Okay, fine. But in general, grow what you like to eat and what you like to use. And if you're if you're not doing that, you're going to have a whole bunch of stuff eventually that you have no use for. The next thing is, what type of budget and timeline do you have for improving your land? This is another one you have to be honest about. I put five grand into it this year. Are you sure? And is that the best use of your five thousand dollars this year? It may or may not be. Oh, it's only uh, I can only do fifty bucks. I can only afford to plant one tree this year. Whatever. I I think you need to think a little bit more if you if you're actually serious about converting your land into something productive. People that tell me I can only put two trees in, I'm like, well, how much are you paying for your trees? And they'll go, oh, I like thirty dollars a piece. I'm like, so if you get trees for ten bucks, you can put in six, right? Well, yeah, but okay. Then then the question becomes, how do I get trees for ten dollars a piece? So we have to be creative with what we're doing and we have to be honest about what we can do and what we want to do and what we're willing to do as far as money. And timelines. just as important. So if your goal is to have your property fully planted, irrigated, everything in one year, you have to say to yourself, is that reasonable even if I have the money? It could be. You might draw everything up, write everything up, and if you just have the money, you might call in a local landscaper and say, this is what I want you to do, and I don't want you to use chemicals or poisons. Here's how I want it done. Give me a price. The guy says here, and you go, okay. Uh, And you might want to do your own timing because they'll want to do it as soon as possible. You want to do it when it's the best time for it to go in, which generally with trees is the fall. We're coming up on prime planting time with trees and bushes, but just saying. Uh, Some climates, it's fine to do it in the spring. Some climates... I had a lot of losses from spring planting this year and I had a lot that aren't lost, but man, they're stressed. And even the ones I think that are going to make it, the tree would probably be ahead if I planted it now versus eight months ago. So just, just kind of think about that in your, your, your planning. Um, But you could just say, that's what I want to do and have it done, and fine. But that's not, again, what's most likely. Most likely is I'm going to be going out and doing this work myself or having neighbors help and things like that. So I have to be realistic about the timeline and the money to go along with that timeline. The reason that's important is it helps us prioritize. And I'll talk about prioritizing with my example property uh, when I get done with the questions. But if we have a timeline that's three years and a time budget that's 10 hours a week, then it almost doesn't matter what the economic budget is unless it exceeds the timeline budget. What I mean by that is, if I have a $5,000 budget okay, for a year, just to make it rounded off, and I take two weeks off, that's $100 a week. I'm not saying to spend that. I'm just saying it just makes it very easy for you to understand that. If I don't have the time to do $100 a week worth of work, then my monetary budget going to go down. And if I have the time to do more than that, then I might need to reallocate certain things. Because I need to prioritize based on what I want to get done, what needs to get done, and what I can afford to get done, and what I have the time to do. I have to put all those things into order. Um, And this is true for things beyond a homestead, guys. When it comes to just projects you want to get done, it's the same way. Whether it's computer projects for clients or whether it's projects around your home like building a smoker, building you know, building a, a composting toilet, you know, building a, a barbecue, whatever. Whatever you're going to build. Um, you you kind of have to look at the money and the time and see how they work with each other and then prioritize from there. Um, the next one is, how long do you plan to own the property? When we had our property in Arlington, before we took our brief two years up in Arkansas, We looked at that property, and we realized it was actually a really great suburban permaculture property. We could have Mac Daddied it out, but we were in a point where we had decided we were going to be leaving in two years. Once I really understood permaculture design, I only had two years to mess with it, and I went, there's a lot of things I would do here that I can make it look good enough to sell it and make a person happy to buy it, but I'm not going to get the ROI, I'm not going to get a return of investment. I'm better off keeping my gardens, putting a couple fruit trees in, and, and, and focusing on the house, not the land, in this market at this price point in the current situation that we're in. And that ended up being the right decision. Where I'm at now, even if I ever decided I wanted another piece of land, I feel like this is a piece of land I'm going to own till the day that I die. So I don't mind tearing up the land with an excavator, putting in a great big swale, and knowing it's not going to look that great for a couple years while I'll develop my food forest. Because I know what it will be, and I know I'm not going to dump it in between. And I'm also a lot more comfortable spending a few thousand dollars a year in plantings than I am at a place that I'm going to be selling in two years. So we have to think about that too. When we're working on our property, how long are we going to have it? The next one is, do you just want personal production, or do you want some sort of an income? Because we can build a productive, profitable farm on a quarter of an acre in the city by selling lettuce to restaurants if we really, really want to. And we could take a two or three acre homestead, put in basically a giant food forest orchard, and probably make money by selling produce to people that end up signing up for some sort of a CSA. And some people don't want anything to do with that at all. They don't need anything else like that in their lives. And everything that they do, they want to be for the purpose of using for themselves. So we have to be, we have to look at that question. And the answer is going to be only for myself and for what I can give away. Or charity or whatever. Uh, the answer is going to be only for myself and what I can give away for now. And maybe I want a source of income in the future. Little, that's actually the harder one. And then the the other answer would be I want for what I can get and I want a surplus for some, some sort of small income or large income, whatever it is. That's actually easy. The reason is I have two knowns, and I have one in the middle that's a maybe. So I almost have to design the maybe like it might as though I wanted an income because otherwise I might make design decisions that lock me into positions where it's not really a great property anymore to make an income off of. So I just need to be thinking about that. I don't need to get bogged down in that one, but if there's any chance that you might want an income, you might want to think about things like, if I did that and I was doing direct sales to the public, where would I want my point of sale to be? Do I want people coming to my house? If not, I, and then do I want to put up a small outbuilding? If I want to put up a small outbuilding, where would it be best that I put it? So then let's not put any permanent structure there that would interfere with the placement of that point of sale building in case I decide to put it in. That would be an example of how to keep going forward, not get locked down, but the kind of consideration to think about. All right. The next one is what laws and restriction must be considered in your area? If there's a law against chickens, I have no problem at all with you figuring out how to covertly keep, you know, four or five chickens. In fact, I think if you can get away with it, you should. I think if you can get 20 or 30 people in your area doing it, I think you should. And by the time there's 20 or 30 people doing it and they find out that it's going on, it might be a good way to get the law changed. But I would not move to that place in the first place if I wanted chickens. I would, that would, that would get me in the tick the no box in, in buying the property if I'm buying it. And if I am planning my long-term food security and self-sufficiency on that property, chickens ain't going to be part of it even if I try to get away with it, if that makes sense. So, I have to look at the governmental regulatory restrictions the same way I look at restrictions that exist for other reasons. In other words, how much it rains is a restriction. How much it doesn't rain is a restriction, right? You know, there's places where it's so wet it's hard to grow certain things. And there's places where it's so dry it's hard to grow other things. So those are restrictions. And there's also the man-made restrictions. It's not that they can't be changed. It's that they're generally difficult to change. And if no one gives a damn, they're very hard to change by yourself. You have to build a coalition to get these things changed, these man-made restrictions changed. So either we avoid them or we acknowledge them and design around them. The next one is something a lot of people don't think of. Are you going to actively live on this piece of land? Most people go, dude, that's what a homestead is. Well, if it's a homestead, it is, but... The question was how much land is enough? Well enough for what? Let's say I buy a hundred acres of land out in, uh, out in the country that I use mostly as a hunting lease. It's very conceivable that I could go in there and put in some protective things against or wildlife and, uh, I could plant a couple acres of, of, of fruit and nut trees, uh, that would basically become a food forest. But I'm going to design that way different than a half of an acre backyard. Way, way different. Different trees, different species, different plantings, different needs, different priorities. And it's going to change my answers. How much time do I have to work on the property weekly? Well, I might have uh, 100 hours a year. But it might be broken up into three or four visits. It all depends. It's a lot harder. But it can be done. So... Do I, you know, am I going to live on the property in question? And if the answer to that is no, then the second part of that question becomes how far away is it? That's, that's important. The next one is how are you going to store and deal with the surplus beyond its immediate use? What are you going to do with everything that you can't eat the day you pull it off the tree? That may take you and re-channel your budget. Cause if the answer is, I don't know. Well, then we'll maybe do less planning and more infrastructure work. More automation so that we do less work to get what we do get. If the answer is I want to make a living off of it, well, then, you know, we might actually try to figure out how do we maximize production per square foot. And if the answer is something along the lines of, well, I want to learn methods of preservation or I know methods of pre- preservation, like freezing, dehydrating, venting it into wine, you, you know, whatever, um, then maybe it's somewhere in the middle. But we're going to set all our priorities off of what are we going to do with the surplus? Which is a very honest question people asked me when they saw all the stuff I was putting in here. What are you going to do with it all? I'm like, well, we're going to eat all we can. <laughs> uh, whatever we can't eat is either going to become beer or wine uh, or preserved in some other way. And then beyond that, we'll give away a lot. We'll plan on building an income for, for Dorothy. If she decides she really wants to run with that, we'll do it. If not, we won't. Uh, beyond that, anything we still have that's good quality could be put in bags and boxes and given to local food banks and churches beyond that, anything else, the animals will eat it chickens and ducks and geese and who knows whatever we might have in the future, so there's no problem with the surplus but we do need an answer to that question, and I'll tell you right now for all the shows I've done on intensive permaculture design and techniques and hooliculture and swales and food forestry and Herbal gardens and uh, and homesteading and livestock care and everything. If you answer those 10 questions honestly, 80% of a permaculture design will fall into place on your property without knowing anything about the word permaculture at all. Those 10 questions are key because they force you to deal with what you have, what you can do, with it in your means and they point out to you your restrictions and restrictions are what designs flow from. And I want you to think about this. I've seen shows like House Hunters and Buying Alaska I think when people look at houses and they walk into an open concept house where the owner has moved out and the house is not staged and it's a big open space. And there's a bunch of different ways it could be set up. But it's a like the rare occurrence where it's like a huge space. Maybe it's a house that used to be something else. Most recently, I saw a house that used to be a saloon in Alaska. It was a massive open space. And the people looking at it sit there and go, I don't know how to use this. Well, the reality is you can use it however you want. It's easy to put walls up. If you think like this is too open, I'd like to have a room there and a room there. Framing it a couple walls and doors is like, bam. It's much easier to put walls up in most instances than to take them down. Taking them down is hard because when you're putting them up, you're not putting in a load-bearing wall. And a lot of times the very walls you want to take out of a house once it's built, since they knew that wall was going in there, is a load-bearing wall. And there's all kinds of complications. So it's actually really easy to design that space, but the mind locks up because there's not enough restrictions in it. Where if I put a wall in a certain spot, you go, well, a couch can go there, a love seat there, and then there's a window back there, so a TV over there, and that's a living room. But if I give you a space that could have a living room in it, a lot of times it's hard. So actually a lot of the restrictions that we have, I have a neighbor over here, they have trees. Those trees are going to shade this much of the, my property. I can't get rid of those trees. Well, that's a known. Now I can design to the restriction, and I can get very elegant with that design. So if I answer these questions and I face the restrictions for what they are, and I either design around or design with those restrictions in mind, all of a sudden things get really easy. So I figure what I would do is make my job hard. I would give myself a boring square, a one-acre square, and I would say, how would I design that with this kind of concept in mind to maximize production and get the most that I can off of an acre? And I think this is a good exercise even if you have a hundred acres or a thousand acres because most people would be better off taking the approach of I'm going to walk outside of my house and figure out to do with the first ten feet that I see in front of me. And then I'm going to design my whole property. Uh, and I'm going to, but I'm going to start off with I'm going to make a quarter of an acre or a half an acre, an acre very, very productive before I even worry about everything else. You might find out that the rest of it gets turned into grazing land or pasture or rangeland or places for animals to roam and and to shoot deer on, because you won't need much more if you do it this way. But let's just start out with it. To make it easy for you to get your head around, I'm going to make it perfectly square. A square acre, and if you have more than an acre of land, you can create a square and do exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying you should. This is just an example. If we wanted a square acre... It would be 208 feet by 208 feet by 208 feet by 208 feet. It's like .33 or something like that, but about 208 by 208 is an acre. If we take that number, 208, and multiply it by 4 for 4 sides of our square, we get 2,496 linear feet. Doesn't even matter if it's a square. It could be a triangle. The linear feet is going to be the same around the perimeter of an acre. That's just how you're going to end up. You can change it to a rectangle. You can make it a trapezoid. But in the end, you're going to get about 2,496, 2,500 feet. Now, assuming that we might fence this acre, which might make everything really easy to protect and manage and give us a restriction of a fence line and we might want enough space on our perimeter so that we can get something like a wheelbarrow or a tractor through to mow behind it and if we were going to ring this in trees which is what I'm going to say the first step is going to be in this hypothetical property we might leave about 8 feet off so we take the 8 feet off each dimension and we end up with then roughly 2400 linear feet to work with that gives us a nice round number so we can all get it in our heads and think about this And so then what I might do is trench that 2,400 linear feet and put a water line in, and then water feed lines and zone that out so I can water a strip around the property. Instead of trying to water the whole property and turn it into a golf course, I'm going to start out with a halo. And that means anytime I decide I want to bring water to another part of the property... I can be no more than one quarter of the distance of the property from the center to the, the side before I can get to a water access line. I probably have a place somewhere near the home. Let's say the home is toward the center of the property where the initial feed line comes out to that halo. So I've got a lot of options if I need a water hose bib somewhere to do something somewhere else once I put that perimeter in. Now that I've got that perimeter set up with some type of, whether it's drip irrigation, hedge sprinklers, whatever works based on your water situation, I can irrigate it. So now I can plant it, and I can know that there's a reasonable chance that most of what I plant is going to survive. So let's do some basic math without common core, making it confusing. If I have 2,400 linear feet, and I plant one tree or large shrub slash bush, so large plantings, every 10 feet, how many can I plant Ding, ding, ding. The answer is 240 trees or shrubs in that perimeter fence line. Now, a lot of people would say 10 feet for a tree? Dude, trees get big. Well, if I prune it orchard style, train it orchard style, or just keep it maintained at a 10-foot canopy, I end up with trees that just barely touch each other on the edges. The way they grow in a nice open savanna forest all right? So I've got some airflow through them, I've got light through them, and I'm going to keep trees manageable where I can reach and get all the stuff that's growing on them. But let's just say you don't believe me that you can put them 10 feet apart, and you can, uh, or you just aren't comfortable with that, or you don't have the money for that, so you're going to plant your trees 20 feet apart. Well, it's still 120 going around the perimeter. Now, do you understand that at that point, I've taken almost none of the acreage away? That almost the whole property, I mean, I, I it's just, I haven't lost anything. I've used the edge and valued the marginal permaculture principle, right? So I've taken almost nothing. I still have pretty much my whole acre to work with. And I have 120 trees if I went lowball, either due to budget or belief system or just what I want. I want them bigger. I want them spaced out more. I don't want them that intensive. Fine, 120 trees. If we lowball the yield per mature tree. What does a tree produce in weight in food? Pears, plums, apples, peaches, etc. when fully mature. I'm talking trees that are five, six, seven years into establishment, well watered and well maintained, a hundred pounds. That is that is not even a stretch for what they can produce. One hundred and twenty trees times a hundred pounds is twelve thousand pounds of food off an acre, and I haven't touched the property really yet. What I've actually done is created this beautiful tree line that acts as both food and, and physical security for my property. It blocks wind. If, if it can be properly done, I can actually turn it into a living type of fence arrangement or anything I want to do with that. But the point is i got 12,000 pounds of food now. Uh, and it's going to take about five to seven years to be able to do that. And it's going to take a significant monetary investment, but now it lives for 100 years or more. Even some of these trees that have 25, 30 year life expectancies, you plant all these trees, they don't all die at the same time. So you or whoever you hand this down to can be selectively replacing certain trees in certain zones as necessary. I mean, you've actually given with just the irrigation the and, and the initial plantings and the development of all the exudates that come off the roots and the soil development, things like that, you've put a 100 a to 1,000 year system in place. You haven't even given up any land yet. So let's say at that point I say, well, now i got that in. Or concurrently, this would be something you might do concurrently, because definitely faster production. It would be good if we had vegetables. I want to have tomatoes and peppers and lettuce and cabbages and broccoli and all the stuff that comes from a garden. A big garden, it's way bigger than most people will ever put in or need, would be a tenth of an acre. Let's say we do a tenth of an acre garden. Now, it is very conceivable to produce two tons of food with annual cropping on a tenth of an acre. It really is. It's probably not realistic, though. It's probably not. If you're doing a lot of heavy staples you know that have a lot of weight to them, you can. Uh, without going too crazy with the work. If you're doing a lot of potatoes and you're doing two potato crops... I'm not a potato guy, but if you are, so be it. Uh, If you're doing things like Jerusalem artichokes, which is a better thing for those of us trying to be uh, lower with blood sugar and more in the paleo world, those can be more productive than potatoes. If you're doing tomatoes, especially if you're doing canning and things like that and drying, you you can do determinate tomatoes so that you're planting like a whole row, harvesting a whole row, and then putting a different crop in there and planting another row of tomatoes with clones made from the first row of tomatoes. You can do that. I mean, winter squashes, stuff like that, you can get it up there. It's up to you how you want to do it. But a tenth of an acre garden is probably bigger than you need, more than you want, and more than most people will do. But just let's say you're ready to do that, and all you have is an acre. So now you've taken the perimeter ring and a tenth acre garden. Let's say the house, right, the house in the driveway takes up a tenth of an acre, which is a big house because the average suburban lot is like one-tenth to .12 acres now, right, right? So it's 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 not really that likely that the house takes up a full tenth of an acre. Let, let, let's say that it does; it takes up a tenth of an acre. Um, and let's say you say, you know what? I don't want to just have this whole thing. I don't want this whole thing to be trees and bushes and guards. I want a place for the kids to play baseball and soccer and throw and catch and play with the dogs and all. So you say I am going to take two tenths of an acre as a as a guard as a as a yard. And I'm going to manage that as a yard. And that's going to be for the kids to play on. So you take two-tenths of an acre and just make it a grass field. And uh, let's say out of all of these things, a tenth of an acre is lost. You You can't really use it because of sidewalks and spaces between these different elements and things like that. So now you're down to, guess what, half an acre. You've done all that and you have a half an acre that you haven't done anything with. So you a tenth of an acre garden. You're ringed with all this food. And now we could go in and say, gee, Jack was right. Planting those trees 20 feet apart was too wide, or even at 10 feet, there's a lot of space in there. So we go in, and on the inside, you know, away from the fence side of that tree line, so we can still get behind it and chop and cut and slash with a tractor if we want to, we go in and we say, well, I can put a bunch of currants and raspberries, and blackberries, and stuff like that, and you might find it takes 20 years of cloning your own plants to plant all that. (laughs) Seriously. Because all of a sudden you realize trees aren't that expensive. You know, because you put one tree in, you go 10 feet before you put another tree in, you put five blackberries in that space, that's five blackberries, that's 50 bucks to 100 bucks, depending on what kind of blackberry I'm buying. But I can make blackberries with canes. So if you're one person or one small family doing that, you might find it take years to develop all these other things that can go in between the trees and just to the inside of the trees. So that starts to get developed. That could easily, over a five-year development period, put another couple 3,000 pounds of food on the table. Now, again, I still have a pretty much a, a, a half an acre. That ring doesn't take... But let's say that ringing the whole property that way, as I expand out the edge a bit, with different climates on each of the four main lines, takes another tenth of an acre. I still have four tenths of an acre. So let's say I, I want fish. I put a pond in. How big a pond do I need to grow uh, a few hundred catfish a year from fingerling to adult size, set up a deer feeder and feed them? A tenth of an acre pond. No problem. You know, the footprint of a house. It's bigger than just about anybody's swimming pool. I could grow catfish in there. If I'm in the south, I could grow tilapia, whatever. Okay, so I put the pond in. Set up some drainage so all the excess water doesn't go in my catchment tanks, goes in there, and uh, all the natural catchment from the land ends up in there. I've got a 10 acre pond. Throw some ducks on that. I really don't have to do anything with them. I, I could probably harvest 12 to 24 ducks a year just from a small flock reproducing that I don't have to pay much attention to. I, I, I still have two-tenths of an acre. Plus, I have two-tenths of an acre that's Grass. I could build a mobile chicken tractor coop hybrid, and put a, a a group of let's say I don't know six eight hens in it, and move them around the perimeter just to the inside edge. They'll get all the extra fruit fruit fall and stuff like that. I move them once a day. They make a couple laps a year. They fertilize everything. They don't really take up any space, and I got eggs. I want more meat than that, though, because I'm only culling those birds every couple of years and you know, getting a few ducks here, maybe one duck a month to eat or something like that. I could put in a rabbit hutch. that takes up no space hardly at all. Put two does and one buck in, and I could get 300 to 600 pounds of meat a year out of that setup alone. And I still have two-tenths of an acre that I don't know what to do with. And I still have two-tenths of an acre that's a lawn. And I'm on an acre. Now, again, I want you to think about this. Suburban lots today run on average anywhere from a tenth of an acre to, you know, a twelfth, one one twelfth of an acre. Those are what I see most likely. Occasionally, 0.15, 0.2. And 0.2 is not that uncommon and not that hard to find in suburbia anymore. Quarter acre lots and up are now considered a big lot. Half acre lots are huge, by the way. Uh, other than the potential with you know social restrictions, which is your neighbors and the government and the pseudo government the h o a you could do half of this easily on a half an acre right so even a suburban lot if you 're going to be left alone, you could do almost everything I said, but you can do other things uh, you note know that i 'm not saying today to do the things that I said to do in your design i 'm saying answer the questions and build your design up i 'm just saying when people say you know I need a hundred acres you give them an acre and say, do what Jack just said, it might take them 10 years. So would it be better to have the money tied up in 100 acres of land or to use the surplus money to develop an acre, two or three, this way? You know, you could put in a 1,500-gallon poly tank, put it up on some kind of a platform the way that I've done, or put it on a piece of ground that's a little bit higher than the rest and catch water from the roof with it. Guess what? As long as you plumb it right... You can use that same perimeter piping to move that water just about anywhere on the property if you're smart about the placement of your elements with no energy. Now, 1,500 gallons is not enough to do a lot of irrigation to that much land, but if you had a time where a well failed or city water failed, you have that as a redundancy, as a backup, and you can always add more tanks. So the same pipe that's used from your, your constant supply of water can be shut off from that supply of water and have pressure applied to it from a reserve source of water if you want to do it. We have to decide what we do. The system I just gave you, by the time you're five, six years in, you're pruning those trees every year. Some of those trees are going to get quite sizable. Some of those prunings you're pruning off are the size of your wrist. You could be growing mushrooms with that. Or just dropping and dropping it. What I'd see a property like that turning into is a property completely surrounded by a beautiful tree line. And that tree line being uber productive. Well, What if my neighbors come by and steal some of my apples? Dude, get over it. You're not going to use all your apples anyway. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love those types of questions because they show the mindset of people. People that worry about that, Well, what if somebody steals what I produce? They're worried about losing that which they do not have. And and I'll, I'll tell you what, that is an important lesson today, as important as anything I've taught you today about land management and design and things like that, to, to not fear losing that which you have not yet acquired. In fact, I'd say this might be the most valuable thing that I can teach you at all about life and having the things you want in your life and not just accepting mediocrity and actually thriving, not just surviving in a a modern lifestyle where the deck is stacked against you. And that's understanding scarcity thinking and how limiting it is. And the story of the greedy old miser. There's a million versions of the story of the greedy old miser, but it always pretty much comes out to this guy, and he, he he won't share with anybody. And he makes lots and lots of money, and he keeps it all for himself. And in the end, he's poor. And the poor people who work so hard for what they have and share everything that what they have—they are actually the wealthy. And there's a billion versions of it. And, and I'm sorry, but they're in essence they're bullshit. But this concept that the greedy are also the wealthy is what's bullshit. It's not that you can't be that way and be miserable, and somebody that has less than you not be that way and be happy. It's the concept that that one acquires. Abundance through greed. It just doesn't work that way. One acquires abundance through thinking abundantly. One acquires wealth by thinking like the wealthy. And those that think with scarcity will always have less than those who think with abundance. It's just a fundamental reality. And it's because of, of this, this lie that's been sold to people. And let me tell you where the story of the greedy rich guy who never shares with anybody, who is actually miserable, and the poor being the righteous come from. It comes from poor people trying to make other poor people feel good about being poor. And in some cases from not quite so poor people trying to make poor people feel about, good about being poor so they can sell something to them. Because the truth is you can make a lot of money selling a lot of low-priced items to poor people. Ask Walmart. They'll tell you all about it. Or ask a TV preacher. He might tell you about it, too. Okay? And, and that's the reality. So it's the poor helping the poor feel good about being poor. Or people that like to make money off the poor make poor feel good about being poor. Because no one loves to hear anything better than how great they are. I mean, that's part of what screwed up our society as well, is we tell people they're great for everything that they do. We give a trophy to a kid for showing up. We might start giving a kid a trophy for for thinking about showing up if we keep heading down this damn path that we're on. But, I mean, that's where we're at at this point, is making people feel good. And, and, And it's not a new formula. It's just been applied to ridiculous levels at this point. But that's where that comes from. Because let me tell you something about the truly wealthy. Very few truly wealthy people, Got there by being stingy. Got there by saying, well, what if I get that and then someone takes it away from me? That is a conditioned response to the mind of the individual who does not know what it is to be wealthy, but thinks they do. You don't even know you're doing it. You're not a bad person when you think that way. You're just locked into the bullshit that you've been sold in life. That scarcity is what's in abundance. When abundance is what's in abundance, people aren't starving today because there's not enough food. People are starving today because food doesn't get to them. People aren't poor in America because we don't have enough money. We've, we've created more money than we should have. We have an overabundance of money. That's the very cause of our inflation. So there's always an abundance to be built and to have and to share and to profit from. But we have to get that mindset out of our, our, our mind that... What we have to do, and it's the way I've always tried to explain to people, it's the one I think that's gotten through to the most people, so I'll say it again here, is that most people hold on to their money and to their assets and to the things that they think are valuable in in their lives the way that you would hold on to, let's say, a a bar so that you didn't fall off a cliff very, very tightly, white-knuckled. And if you're holding on to a bar, that kind of works until you get fatigued and fall, and that's what's going to happen. But the the way you have to hold on to money and the way you have to hold on to stuff is you have to hold on to it the way you would hold on to sand. <clears throat> if you stuck your hands down into dry beach sand and, and, and squeezed as tight as you can and pulled as much sand as you could up out of that sand, you'd find you'd end up with very little sand as the squeezing and the tension and the tr- attempting to hold that which is unholdable seeped out between your fingers and the cracks in your hands and you'd end up with almost no sand. But the funny thing is if you reach into that same sand and you you hold loosely and you pull it up loosely, you'll see that you'll have a great deal of sand in your hand for a very, very long time. It will also slowly trickle out of your hands but you'll hold on to it for a lot longer and that means you get to control it and do good things with it for a lot longer And you have a lot less time necessary before you have to reach in and get some more. This is how you manage wealth. You protect your wealth ruthlessly in this day and age with things like insurance and legal representation. Because you have to. Because the system made it that way. But when it really comes on to the, the mental way of thinking about wealth, you have to hold it loosely. And if you do that, you find yourself in worlds of perpetual abundance I've often been asked how you've been able to get, how I've been able to get so many things done in my life. And that's because I never really worried about the potential to lose the benefit of getting it done. It was always more about getting it done or acquiring it or proving it than getting to keep the result. And because of that, there's lots of results and you end up getting to keep lots of them. Or at least you get to end up holding a lot of them for a long time. And you can leverage them to do more, stay a productive member of society. And most of the wealthy people in the world, you can take out the people that inherited it and weren't taught how it was generated. Most of the wealthy people in the world got their wealth that way. Now, there's families with so much money that's had it for so many generations, but they've largely lost touch with that. And that's where the legend of the greedy rich guy comes from. You notice the greedy rich guy in these stories? The Ebenezer Scrooges? They're always like guys like Ebenezer. They're middle of the road rich guys. They're not JD Rockefeller. Right? There's some guy that owns an accounting firm in medieval England or something like that. Whatever. I can't remember what Scrooge's deal was, but you know, something like that. They're your neighbor that lives four four or five miles down the road in the better neighborhood. That's the rich guy that's always made out to be the bad guy. He didn't get there alone. And he didn't get there by holding on everything tightly. And he didn't get there by fearing what he l- would lose. And the thing is, there's a great deal more wealth in a mature tree than there is in a $20 bill. I want you to think about it. There's a great deal more wealth... And the ownership, or let's say the the custodianship of a mature tree, then there isn't the custodianship of a $20 bill. Let's say you have a mature chestnut tree, big, beautiful, mature chestnut tree that you planted and you grew, and when you die, the tree will continue. Okay? And if we looked at that tree right now and said, if it could be dug up and transplanted, what would it sell for? Even though the seedling sold for less than a $20 bill, the tree would be worth thousands and thousands of dollars if it could even be moved. And the value the tree would bring to the property that it's on would be far in excess of even that. And a hundred of them planted in a beautiful stately row of production that will last a thousand years or more is so much more valuable than $120 bills in a stack. That's easy to understand and easy to see. But a 100 years after you're dead, and your custodianship is passed to somebody else, assuming somebody's a wise person in the custodianship of those trees, they'll be worth more then than they were when you planted them and then on the day that you died. In 1,000 years from now, they will continue to have grown in value to where when they do start to die of old age, it's very conceivable that people would look at them and do all that they could to preserve them for as long as possible because they represent such an amazing thing to be a thousand years old as a tree. A $20 bill will be worth less tomorrow than it is today, let alone a thousand years. So if these rules about not seeing things in scarcity and seeing things in abundance and not worrying about what you don't get to keep apply to money. They damn sure apply to things like trees. And what I'll end with today, I'm sure some of you already knew this was going to happen since I started talking this way, is the Greek proverb that's become my favorite saying in the world. A society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they know they shall never sit. Maybe we should plant some of those trees right in our own backyard. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TV A better way